Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast, Decon 101. I'm Michelle Brown, and with me today I have Emily Danko and Monica Elvin. And we are also joined by our brilliant producer, Candace Hopkins, who is joining us as well. So today on Decon 101, we are diving into a conversation on the social construction of race. And we will also be talking about racism, of course. And we are excited to dive into this topic, even though we know due to our research and the work um, and our social, our own social consciousness, that this is a really difficult topic to dive into a really um, a really visceral, close to the heart, has extreme and real impacts on uh, so many's lives, um, similar to many of our other topics we've discussed so far. So just to let you know, please take care of yourselves as you um, as you listen to the podcast and some of the information that we're going to be sharing. But as we always do, uh, we always want to ground ourselves in some historical context and the historical context of race and its evolution as a social construct. So before I hand it over to Emily, we're just going to take a quick commercial break. And when we return, Emily will be jumping right in. At Spokane Treatment and Recovery Services, we are dedicated to our community. That's why we have a sobering unit that runs 24-7 and is the first step into our detox unit. We are fully staffed around the clock in order to make sure that we can answer any questions over the phone while we serve our clientele. For more information or to call anytime, day or night, you can dial 509-570-7255. Welcome back after that commercial break. As usual, I'm going to be covering the historical aspects behind race and racism. Um, But before I start, I want to include a quote that really spoke to me as I was doing this research and I think is a good thing to keep in mind because race is so closely tied to a lot of people's identities. But this is by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And the quote is, race is the child of racism not the father. Really, as I was reading through a lot of this research, what I found is that race evolved really alongside the formation of the United States. And race was a concept that was really used to inform a lot of the policies that allowed certain people of certain identities to stay in power and have more power in the United States. And having this idea that race, race does not cause racism, but racism caused this concept of race is really, really important. And especially for someone like me, I'm white, is really important to keep in mind. Because as I'm thinking about this, I like, I check my privilege. And I think about how I have power based on the way that I look. Normally, we start in Greek times. (laughs) But today we're starting more modern European. Um, As I was doing my research, what surprised me is that even though we have depictions of like racial tensions in popular culture, such as Othello, we don't actually see the word race come up in the play. And whereas they use blackness as a way to refer to Othello, whiteness is more an actual description rather than a part of someone's identity. So whenever they talk about 
Desdemona, the white character. Oh, her her skin is so pale, things like that. It's an actual like description of her physical features. So that was very surprising to me. Really getting into the 17th century is more when we start to see people thinking about how to classify people and organize people. Because that's really when we started to like rationally and scientifically study the natural world. And so as people were looking at different varieties of birds, for example, they were also thinking, okay, I notice that these birds look different. They function in different ways. I wonder if the way that human beings look also means that we have differences, either just external or is it internal as well. Getting into the 18th centuries, we got more of these natural laws and really a lot of these laws justified enslavement of people from Africa as well as colonialization. Before that, if your mother was a slave, you were not a slave. You were born free. It wasn't something you inherited. And in addition, you could make wages and you could buy your way out of slavery. Whereas now where your race is tied to slavery and your status as a free person, you always look this way. Therefore, you always are an enslaved person. Then as we move a little forward, still at this time, we're not getting an idea of white as an identity. We're seeing it more applied to people of Anglo-Saxon backgrounds only. So even someone like me, who today identifies as white, my heritage is Italian, and I would not have been considered white at that time. In addition, white was only used to refer to upper-class women because they wanted to kind of differentiate that white was for people who are privileged who didn't have to go out and work in the fields. Uh, men would also go out and work. And so men were not be considered to be identifying as white at that time, because, you know, if you're a man, you should be going out and working and getting more tan. Then once we get to the 1660s, you know, moving from Europe to the United States, this is really when we start to see this whiteness as an actual like identity. And we're also now seeing more scientific study based on race. Uh, I'm going to do some name dropping here. Samuel Morton was a scientist and did some research in the 1830s and 40s. He was a big proponent of um, craniology, which basically meant that you would like measure people's skulls and you could tell like what kind of a life they would have by measuring someone's skull. And based on his research, and I'm saying this in the loosest sense of the term because it's not really scientific, he decided that based on his research, people of African descent had smaller skulls and therefore were less intelligent. And of course, this all leads up into segregation. Like even after, ugh, uh, we also have the more quote scientists a lot of the pictures that he has in his books are based on caricatures, not actual people. Uh, Josiah Knott and Louise Agassiz, um, they believed people who are from African descent were an actual separate species. They didn't even classify them as the same species as people who are white. They're like, no, we're going to move these people over here into a complete different category because it means that we can treat them differently. We don't have to treat them the same way. Got rid of slavery in the United States. Like these scientific ideas still are perpetuating. We, 1901, firmly have included Italians and Eastern Europeans in this concept of whiteness. So 
I would not have been considered white until 1901. You know, so even further proof that this concept of like race and whiteness is very manufactured and it's a very modern social concept. And so, you know, it was this really rough area, not an ideal area to be in. And us as a white family, were not expected to be there. Well, Emily, I have to say my favorite part about you talking is your reactions to what you're talking about. So thank you for that. Um, and so I, I think we wanted to start off this week how we have been with sharing um, our memory of, you know, first instances or first awarenesses. Um, and my uh, my first memory of being, I think, aware of race. So to give you some context, as this is a listening program and not a visual I am a white female. I appear white, mostly white, but I'm also Mexican, but I look white. Um, and I grew up in Oakland, California, um, which is definitely more diverse, definitely more um, people of color. And so the, the actually the area that I grew up in was East Oakland. Um, I went to Oakland Tech, alma mater of Marshawn Lynch. Shout out to the Bulldogs. Um, and we, we moved into a particularly low socioeconomic area when I was maybe five or six years old. And first um, time that I realized that we were the only white family in the neighborhood was when the mailman, I think this had to be in the first week that we were there, came by and my brother and I, um, my brother also appears very white, is very white. We were out in the yard playing and uh, the mailman came up and he kind of stops and, and he just stares at us and he uh he goes you don't live here and my brother and I are like oh yeah we do we this is our house um like we just moved in and he's like uh are you mexican and uh and i mean we are but we don't appear it so i guess we didn't feel like we uh deserved the to claim it so we said no uh and he he just looked so confused he kept doing kind of double takes uh, back between my brother and me and uh and he dropped off her mail and he left um and i think that was the first time that i realized that that we i guess we're different which is you know funny i think you usually hear the other way around um you know somebody who's you know of color and is surrounded by people who are white uh you know those tend to be the predominant stories and i think you know that was when i first had my kind of humbling instance because i realized you know like okay were considered different in this area that is low socioeconomic and, um, you know, very high crime rate. Well, I know for a fact that I didn't understand those impacts um, at the time, being, you know, six or seven years old. But that was the first time that I kind of questioned, you know, where I was. So I will go ahead and pass it off to Emily. I'm sure you have a riveting story for us. So for my thinking about race and noticing really when race mattered, I think, so I, to give people context, I grew up in Eastern Washington, um, in a small town called Wenatchee and it is primarily white and then Hispanic Latino, uh, populations there. So really kind of split down the middle. Um, and then not much racial diversity other than that. In my classes, I was one of those kids who was in like honors classes and advanced math and things like that. 
but there's no honors or advanced science classes. So you're maybe in advanced math courses and advanced English courses, but then you're in a science class with everybody, no matter like whether they're honors or, you know, pre-algebra or whatever. I just remember my eighth grade year, I was in my science class one time and we were partnering up with, we were like splitting up to do a lab or something like that. And I was picking the people that I wanted to work with because I was like, oh, they're friends with me and I have them in other classes. And so like, if I have questions, I can ask them. We had a couple minutes before she handed out the materials to us. And I was looking around, just you know, as you do, just daydreaming around the classroom. And I realized that every single person in my group was white. And they were also people who were in my honors classes. And then I look around a little bit harder and I notice that there are groups of kids who are in those same classes, those honor programs, who are also all white. And then you have groups of students who maybe you have like one white student, but then you have like three Hispanic Latino students, right? And so I definitely noticed at that point. And then from then on, I was always noticing like, huh, I don't notice a lot of students who are in these honor programs or advanced classes who are not like me, who are not white. And for me, now that I think back and as a teacher, I think a lot about how I recommend students for honors programs now. Am I recommending them because they are fitting into the white culture and so they just do better in the classroom or am I recommending them because they actually need the program? And so ever since that day, really, and especially as a teacher now, I, I think about race and I think about the way that it affects kids and their schooling because it really does affect kids. I mean, we think we get tracked into classes at a very young age, and then we're stuck there. And if you're not seeing the diversity in your programs that is the demographics of your school, then you have a problem. You are segregating your students. Thank you so much, Emily and Monica, for your, your stories around your early experiences with race. I think that taking a moment to pause and reflect on things that, you know, so often we don't acknowledge, especially those early experiences. I think, you know, currently in our national dialogue around race and race relations and, you know, police brutality, protests, everything, oftentimes it's easy for us to just be reflective of what's happening now. And I think there's a real opportunity to root ourselves, not only in that that history that Emily, that you shared, but also how that national history intersects with our own personal stories of, of place and our own interactions with systems. Our lives are so racialized in America that it's the water that we swim in. And so for my reflection on my earliest memories of race, my earliest memory of racism, um, I guess it's important to, you know, introduce myself and acknowledge that I, I identify as a multiracial uh, cis woman. I identify as Black, white, and Indigenous, and the multiple identities that I hold, my multiple racialized identities I hold, is something that I think has been a story of becoming. I think 
identity and growing up as a young person of color acutely aware of my of my skin tone i am brown i have always been brown i've always been curious of what it means to grow up being a brown girl and being a brown woman i also come from a really diverse family my dad is a dark black man tall loud in all of its wonderfulness my grandfather is a dark brown native Nez Perce man whose skin tone more perfectly matches my own than my own father. Uh, my mom who has olive toned skin and green eyes and brown straight hair. And here I am a brown little girl with curly hair wondering like, who's my match? right? Just growing up, being curious around, like, why am I the darkest? Um, my brother is lighter than I am. And why do my cousins have straight hair, but they are also brown? Why does my nose look like this? Why does my hair grow like this? And I also had uh, an adopted uh, Korean stepbrother. And so just being surrounded by all different kinds of beautiful people. Um, but some of my earliest memories, and I can't necessarily root it to why I felt this way, but I remember growing up in school and people asking me like, what are you? Like you're brown, but you're kind of racially ambiguous. So what, what are you? Are you native? Are you black? But you're kind of light to be black. No matter what, I always needed the, I had the feeling of needing to claim white. So if someone says you're black, right? And I'd be like, well, I'm black and white. Or, you know, you're, you're native. Well, I'm, I'm white too. And I just think that that is something that I really didn't recognize what that meant to feel the need to have a closer proximity to my whiteness um, until I got honestly into college and began began having a sociological understanding of the reasons why I always felt the way I did around having an internalized sense of inferiority or oppression about who I was and how I looked and how others perceived my brownness and thinking that if I could just be a little bit closer to whiteness or the ability to claim that whiteness that for some reason that would absolve me from from who I really was. Granted, I've done a lot of internal internal work since then and I am proud of my multiple identities, but I think, you know, from the earliest time I can remember holding multiple identities at the same time and being aware of my skin pigmentation and my brownness has been something that I've always been aware of. I don't act native enough, you know. Mm -hmm. Um is one thing that I kind of struggle with with. So you mentioned, welcome back everyone. I am so excited to have Sila Dow joining us today to discuss the social construct of race. Like myself, Sila holds multiple racial identities. And truth be told, Sila, while she just turned 18, is someone I sincerely admire and look to for wisdom and have been so grateful to know and grow with over the last several years. So Sila, thank you so much for your willingness to join me in this conversation. But before we get started with a few questions, do you want to introduce yourself further to, the, to everyone? Yes. As you know, my name is Sila. Um, my name is Tununatak, which means to turn away from and start on your own journey. Um, 
I'm a senior in high school currently, and I'm 18 years old, and I'm very, very excited to have this conversation today. So one of the first questions I've asked my fellow uh, co-hosts to consider, and I'm also curious what your thoughts are, is what's your of race? Probably the first time that I really, really became conscious of my race is when I went to ECAP, which was like a pre preschool and uh, all sitting in a circle. And when like I looked around, I could kind of tell that I, I guess wasn't exactly the same as everybody that I saw. Cause a lot of kids in my class were white. <laughs> yes. And although I'm fairly racially ambiguous, I still felt like I kind of stood out, especially because I had really, really intense hair. (laughs) Curly hair, right? Yeah. My first instance with race and understanding it wasn't negative, but it was Mm -hmm. kind of like a shock of like, oh, there's differences. I moved on because I was pretty young and I didn't really (laughs) think that there was anything more to it other than some people look different. The idea of like being racially ambiguous and so much of race and the construct of race is so predicated on visual like indicators and cues. So I know as myself as like a multiracial like individual and depending on who I'm with, even like who's trying to understand my racial identity impact what people think I am. Is, do you have a similar experience? Definitely. Um, in a lot of cases, particularly like other races that are more ambiguous, such as like Hispanic and mm-hmm. Mexican, they're oftentimes like, oh, you're, you're, you're Mexican. And like, yes, that is part of my identity, but that isn't the whole scope of it. As well as one thing that I've definitely noticed from being racially ambiguous is that nobody really takes me seriously so in spaces where I will say that yes I am black I get weird looks and I guess it's more that although there is some ambiguity privileges obviously because I'm more light-skinned my hair isn't kinky I am shushed less the second I get angry Mm -hmm. I'm not tone policed as much but at the same time it's also impactful in situations where I'm trying to highlight other people's voices where I'm trying to voice my own and it feels like people just want me to shut up because I'm not the the minority that they want Mm. I'm not dark skin enough Mm -hmm. ambiguity even though it is a privilege in a white society it's more of a hindrance when I'm trying to communicate with other people of color and you you kind of already kind of moved into this next question where wanting to know like how does the social construct of race impact your life and even beyond your life but the lives of those those that you love you know your family belonging to an indigenous household and then just your consciousness around how race operates like even in school and the education system just want to hear more of your thoughts on how it has real implications and impacts on people's everyday lives. Yeah, definitely. Um, Particularly in school, I was told, like, school is important. You're meant to be there to learn. You're meant to be there to teach other people something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've definitely noticed from my peers that school is almost an enemy Mm. and that it's meant to take away from who they are. And though systematically that is quite literally what it was put in place for for things like boarding schools mm-hmm. um, I feel like taking control of the narrative as a student of color taking that narrative and the power away from those people up top mm-hmm. utilizing their resources and then using it to develop your own 
humanity as a person of color is really important. And one thing that I've definitely noticed is that we lack that because Mm -hmm. kids aren't taught that they can overcome it. They're simply told the system is against you. So oftentimes I feel like, you know, when we're having the conversation about race, oftentimes the the conversation is really hyper-focused on the experiences of students of color or for, you know, people that have people that purposefully, you know, minoritized racial identities. So we're talking about black and brown folks, you know, uh, Latinx folks, Asian folks, um, Islander, Indigenous folks. But oftentimes the conversation of whiteness and white people isn't oftentimes part of the conversation when we're talking about race. And so I'm just curious, you know, what are some of your thoughts on whiteness? It's a good thing. And acknowledging that culture is something that we need. Uh, One thing that I've definitely experienced, especially in the United States within my generation, Gen Z, is that what we know as culture is Black culture, because there is no other accessible culture around us. What we see is Black culture. We don't see really Latinx culture. We don't really see even white culture, or it's Mm -hmm. purely demonized, or it's something like Jersey Shore, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm really emphasizing that everybody does have a culture and everybody does have a cultural and race-based identity uh-huh. and really like acknowledging that and soaking it up and learning more about it is important. Appreciate that perspective because I think oftentimes, you know, when we think about the history of race and how whiteness has been so normalized, right, um, that it somewhat masks other identities that are you know closer in proximity to it right so when Mm -hmm. we think of different cultural identities such as you know Italian you mentioned Jersey Shore right Um, or even like Irish culture or like German culture and so often especially in America um, those cultural identities are you know lack of a better term like whitewashed by just a a general like Eurocentric view yeah, Eurocentric, um, you know, lack of, lack of that authenticity that you're saying, right, that cultural, that rootedness. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just really appreciate, you know, kind of reflecting that oftentimes there, there's two sides of the race construct, right? Like there's so much beauty that comes from, you know, the cultural identities that are formed out of struggle, but then also how has the race construct obscured you know folks indigenous roots you know from like their their home country be it central america or you know africa or even you know europe so so one of the last questions i have for you sila is is related to what do you think is the most important thing people need to know about race i guess one thing that's really important for everyone to acknowledge is that it's not a bad word Mm-hmm. It's not a bad concept. Everybody has a part of it. Everybody has their own separate identity with it. Mm-hmm. And to not villainize any one identity, to not overglorify any one identity, to acknowledge them, find the similarities and differences within yourself and other people, and build bridges. Connect with people about their native food. Connect mm-hmm. with people about their language. Share your own. Research your own. And really dive into what race means. Because it's not just the color of your skin. It's cultural. 
it's connected to other races in different ways. Mm-hmm. So really, I guess, exploring it more than just talking about it. I love that. Oh, Sila, you're such a, you're so many amazing things. I just love you so much. And I'm um, just Thank so you. appreciative of your, your wisdom and your truth and your experience. And just appreciate you sharing that with folks today. Have you ever been curious about what makes a good leader or considered running or starting your own nonprofit organization? Whitworth's University's Graduate Studies in Education Administrative and Nonprofit Leadership Program was designed for leaders ready to make a lasting impact in their communities. If you've ever thought about leadership or have aspirations of better serving your community, do us a favor and check us out online at whitworth.edu GSE. Current state of the nation. Uh, one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was individual racism versus group or what we'd call like structural racism. All right, well, welcome back from that break. And thank you to Sila for adding an impact or sorry, an input. I know um, Emily and I were talking about this previously about how, you know, it's really interesting as we're both white females, you know, we've never been asked, what are you? <laughs> and, and so Emily brought this up and I just thought that that was important to share. You know, it's it's these things when we when we really look back to think about it. And it's, again, it's a privilege to not have to think about it, right? That That is a privilege in itself. But now we want to bring you to some of the, the sociological side of things as we often do. And and so I guess with kind of the, the current impact, um, or I think this has been a huge topic uh, recently, you know, we talk about racism as the structural foundation of policing um, and, you know, how it affects crime rates and, you know, prison sentencing and all these things. And and I think that's important because it ties into symbolic racism, which I'll talk a little bit about later, just to kind of paint that picture. So Emily's already kind of gone over this. So if we look, you know, in the North American context, we see this racial racial ideology serving as this justification for colonial violence and land appropriation. And then, you know, later on, you see it justified in these state-sanctioned social, economic, and these symbolic violence uh, acts that are directed towards people of color in Jim Crow laws. Again, it's this justification that's kind of happening after the fact. So I love that, you know, Emily opened with that. You know, it's the child of racism. Your race is the child, but it's this justification after the fact, right? You know, so the action kind of occurs and then it's explained, um, you know, through these cruel terms. But uh, I, I think it's important to realize that, again, we, we think of racism, or at least I think how it's taught, you know, when you're children, it's this individual ideology, you know, if you're a racist individual, then you, you know, hate certain people of other colors, you know, it, and it becomes this really easy thing to set yourself apart from. Uh, but I, I love that what's been coming into to light more recently, and, and this, I really shouldn't say that because this is not a new concept, it's just becoming more popular. Um, and I think with social media and whatnot, it's easier for more voices to be heard that normally wouldn't. So this is not a new concept, but it's one that's getting more attention, I would say, is this idea of structural racism. You know, so 
and, and this lends into how we explain inequalities in more modern eras. So again, I've touched on criminal sentencing. We look at health and wealth, disproportionate statistics, anywhere you look where we see people of color who have higher rates in areas where it's uh, unwanted. So you would say, you know, higher health risks. And then again, you know, kind of looking to the other side of things, lower socioeconomic standing, higher criminal sentencing, you can see it in hiring, credit markets, housing, you know, pick a topic. And we know this, this isn't something that's hidden. You know, this isn't something that should be a shock to anyone. And yet how, how it's explained, you know, it, in more recent times is now being through this structural racism. So again, that's coming to light on you know versus that justification it's an explanation but people like to set themselves apart from that and this is that that symbolic racism that i want to talk about and this symbolic racism it's really kind of referring to motives for in-group favoring and it's more so thought to be unconscious you know and again this kind of alludes just to how how you're raised and how you're socialized um and these are things that are ingrained and it's not necessarily just through lineage through your you, you know, your parenting, um, this is an attack on how you were raised, it's how we're raised in a society. So by these institutions that repeatedly penalize people more heavily who are people of color. So I guess the, the most interesting thing I think that should be brought into the light is how we, how we define racism. Um, social scientists in the in the 70s started to develop these techniques like get out of people if they had racist intentions or not uh, because people do like to separate themselves you know from this to more subtly individual racism and you know so they wanted to alleviate this respondent hesitancy to report socially undesirable attitudes let's put it that way because people who are white like to report that they support racial equality. However, they tend to resist policies to implement, you know, racial equality. They they started coming up with questions. Let's see, I have I have a, a couple examples here, but I, I think the the biggest thing to 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 kind of take away is how you would answer those questions, right? I think most people listening today in the US, you know, in 2020 would say, you know, I'm not racist. However, look at the policies that that you're supporting right and how they're disproportionately impacting people of different color there's this idea of this kind of in-group favoring that i touched on where people like to say well this is a quote that i'm getting from a study it's not the race it's the irresponsible types so um so again there's still this attribution this negative connotation that is attached but people are justifying it through race so not much has changed other than that individual separation or wanting of separation and again these are just things that if you sit back like when we look back on our memories of these first instances where we've become aware um you know if you're if you identify as white if you you know appear white like for myself where i i am mexican but i appear white you know you have the privilege of realizing these things later in life right? And ha not having to think about it when you're eight years old, but coming back to it when you're 20 years old and you're in college and you're, you know, thinking a little bit more critically and you're realizing, okay, what were these social structures that raised me to think that there is no racism in policing or in healthcare, right? These are good systems. Well, this is where we kind of learn to think a little bit more critically and look a little bit deeper into 
how we're defining these terms that we want to disassociate with and how that affects you know what it is we're supporting and so with that i'm going to go ahead and hand this over to michelle because i know that she can kind of take this away for us which is the new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up hopelessly tragically deceitfully to believe they are white and so i think and sila even brought this up in in her interview thank you so much monica for that sociological perspective on race and also delineating the different forms of racism and even naming how just even within the last several months in this summer of racial terror, to be quite honest, that more and more folks are coming to be more aware of of racism, not just as an individual act, but as a structural um, reality. And I think you mentioned, Monica, that so many people say, I am not racist, right? But I think there's a new adoption of being not racist is no longer enough. We need to be anti-racist and especially anti-racist in our in our systems. And just as Emily brought up at the beginning of our time together, that Ta-Nehisi Coates quote that I also had referenced in my notes around uh, race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy so much as one of hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old, but the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, one of the things that's often left out of the conversation, the race conversation, is how the social construct of race as a system of racial hierarchy, racism, not only it oppresses people of color, right, and privileges white folks, but it causes harm to everyone. Because as we know, systems of oppression dehumanize everyone. And so there is another quote by Ta-Nehisi Coates that I think is so important to name and to say his words. A modern day like prophet, for lack of a better words, and talking about race as a social construct and racism as you know, structural or individual, and we can, you know, sociologically define and pull apart these terms. But what Ta-Nehisi Coates reminds us of is, he says, but all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasms, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscles, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. I bring this quote up an attempt to connect some of the many other topics that we've talked about, the social con constructions that we've talked about, how beauty is socially constructed, how disability is socially constructed, even time and money and how all that has profound impacts on the body. These aren't just ideas. These ideas take on a life of their own and deeply impact. And I think that's that's one of the key takeaways that I hope that you know, we leave our time together as we're talking about these social constructs is that these aren't just ideas. These ideas have 
profound impacts that we we have responsibility for. Um, and so the quote that I'll end us with is a quote by Adrienne Marie Brown, and it's a mantra of sorts, where she says, where we are born into privilege, we are charged with dismantling any myth of supremacy. Where we are born into struggle, we are charged with claiming our dignity, joy, and liberation. And as we've been discussing over the last several weeks, many of our identities uh, intersect across uh, privilege and struggle, and really the opportunity is to join together to embrace more liberating moments for one another. So with that, thank you for joining us for Deconstruction 101 as we deconstructed the social construct of race. We look forward to talking to you again soon.